If you go to your neighborhood bookstore and see on the shelf a, a book with a, a black background and a picture of an apple and an orange, I urge you to take a closer look at what is actually a really remarkable book called The Art of Choosing. Hence that image of apples and oranges uh, given to us uh, on, on the cover. But there is so much more to this book than its intriguing cover image. This is a book which helps us explore the whole notion of choice, something which we tend to think about in overly simplistic fashion, when in fact the way in which we make the choices of our everyday lives and the monumental choices that sort of determine which direction our lives will take uh, spring out of all kinds of different influences. And depending on who you are, where you've grown up, in what culture you have been raised, your whole notion of what choice is all about might be very, very different from someone else. That is essentially the heart and soul of this tremendously fascinating book. And uh, Sheena Iyengar is the S.T. Lee Professor of Business at uh, Columbia University. And uh, she has been researching the notion of choice for quite some time. Her work on the topic has appeared in places like the New York Times and uh, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and so on. And uh, this book is uh, available now from 12 books. And uh, I am so glad to be speaking with Sheena Iyengar about this intriguing topic and uh, her experience of exploring it. Sheena Iyengar, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much for having me here today. I look forward to speaking with you and uh, appreciate this opportunity very much. There are a couple of things that I think are important for our listeners to know about you because I think they are factors that are very important uh, in undergirding your your study of choice, or or they they certainly uh, have some bearing on on how you yourself have experienced uh, the concept of choice in your own life. One of them is... uh, where your parents come from and your own uh, ethnical background. Can you talk a moment about that? I am a Sikh, so my parents came here from India, and I grew up with a very traditional Sikh home, And I was, but I went to American schools. And so I was, going, I was constantly going back and forth between the American idea of choice, it was the land of opportunity, fulfill the American dream, and it was all about what you want and who you want to be. And at home, I grew up in a very traditional Sikh home, which was it was all about, you know, knowing your duties, your obligations, uh, following the, you know, the wishes of your parents or the or the elder. So you know, there were lots of rules to follow. Like you could never cut your hair. There was you would dress in a particular way. Um, my parents' marriage was arranged. Most of the time, your parents had a pretty strong hand, role to play in what career you would undertake. You know, like being a doctor or being an engineer was good. Hmm. The o- book opens with uh, what amounts to back-to-back descriptions or narratives of what life is like, and in particular, what your life uh, is like, or, or maybe more specifically, what your mother's life was like. I want to just read uh, a portion of these two paragraphs and, and have you comment. You write this. This is on the very first page. My mother is a recent immigrant from India, was of two worlds, and she would pass that multiple identity on to me. 
My father was making his way to Canada but had not yet arrived. His absence at my birth was a sign of the deeper absence yet to come. Looking back, I see all of the ways in which my life was set the moment I was born into it. Whether in the stars or in stone, whether by the hand of God or some unnameable force, it was already written, and every action of mine would serve to confirm the text. That is one story. Here is another. You never know, do you? It's a jack-in-the-box life. You open it carefully, one parcel at a time, but keep, things keep springing up and out. That's how I came into the world. Suddenly, a month before I was due, my father, not even able to receive me, still in India, where my mother had always imagined she would be too. Yet somehow, she had ended up in Toronto with me in her arms. And, uh, and through the window, she could see the snow whirling. Like those flakes of ice, we were carried to other places. So you are describing two different ways in which we can understand the world and our lives. One in which life unfolds in almost preordained fashion, and another in which it does not. It is almost entirely the opposite. Um, Is this especially true for you and your parents and this intriguing background you have? Or is this, in a sense, really true of, of, equally true of everybody? Oh, it's true of everybody. I mean, if I ask you to tell me the story of your life, you can tell me the story of your life in terms of destiny. You can tell me the story of your life in terms of chance, all the random events that happened in your life. You can tell me the, the story of your life in terms of all the choices that you made. And any, any one of these would be just as accurate. But I think that it's when we tell the story of our life in terms of choice that it gives meaning to all the things we did, all the things we thought. Because choice is the only tool that we have that enables us to go from who we are today to whom we want to be tomorrow. And otherwise, life is just what happens to us, and we sit there passively allowing it to happen to us. When you think of your life in terms of fate and chance, it it doesn't empower you, right? It's a matter of responding rather than being proactive. At what point in your life did you become intrigued by this notion of choice, of the choices we make, and particularly of the fact that different people, depending on where they've grown up or lived or what they've experienced, think about the notion of choice in very different fashion. When did this first become apparent to you? When I was a child, I mean, it was was constantly going back and forth between these two worlds that this gave me this tension between duty on the one hand and personal preference on the other hand, that these were not just two different ways of living, these were two different languages about choice. You know, and I would tell my friends in school, you know, my parents met each other on their wedding nights, people would think that this was something horrific, that, you know, somehow, you know, something really evil had happened to my parents, that they were victims of some major crime. And you'd go home, and you'd talk to your parents, they seemed perfectly normal, and all the other parents, they seemed perfectly normal, and they all had arranged marriages that just seemed perfectly normal. It was actually the love marriage that seemed kind of weird. Hmm. So very much springing from your own personal life is when you started to see Uh, the notion of choice being more complicated than most of us realize. I mentioned that there were two things about you personally that that are worth talking about for our listeners to know because they are uh, are factors in how you have come to understand 
choice, <laughs> so much better than probably the rest of us do. And uh, beyond your own ethnic background is the fact that you happen to be blind. Um, tell our listeners uh, the story of, of, of when and why and how you became blind. And then what sort of difference you think that has made, I don't mean in your overall life, but particularly in your study of choice, the way in which this has sometimes uh, been, in, in a sense, a help to you. I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa when I was three years old. My parents sort of got a little suspicious at some point when I kept banging and everything, and they decided to get me tested, and it turned out I had a rare form of retinitis pigmentosa, and the degeneration after that happened very quickly. By the time I was in high school, I had lost everything other than the ability to see light. You know, that's where I'm at right now, too. I can see sunlight. So I grew up with a lot of questions that were constantly being posed at me, you know, like, is she going to be able to study math or science? Can she walk to school by herself? Is she going to be able to shave her legs? You know, no matter what stage of life I was at, the questions just kept coming. And it made me very aware of the fact that, you know, that there are limitations to what you can be and do. And yet there are also possibilities. So growing up, I, I was beginning to develop a clean awareness of how my hopes and expectations would often come up against the limitations, and that it was critical for me to be able to distinguish between what would constitute a true limitation versus a perceived one. What limitations could I actually turn into possibilities in my life? And what I've come to learn is that that it is the delicate balancing between our limitations and the possibilities that we can create for ourselves that is at the heart of the art of choosing. And that's for all of us. I suppose, too, uh, this particular example, I mean, the fact that you are blind and contending with certain limitations uh, with which the rest of us do not contend, that you are faced with a whole continuum of of possibilities. Uh, At one end would be that you could play it very, very safe and, and really go out of your way to avoid any sort of situations in which... You might be harmed or, or injured or in some way suffer detrimental things. And on the other end of the spectrum would be deciding that you're going to rush pell-mell into the world and uh, take your hard knocks and, uh, and learn from them and go on and experience life as fully as you can with no hesitancy whatsoever. And, and then, of course, there's an infinite number of places along that continuum in between. And that is also in a sense, a choice which you and, uh, and and all of us make when it comes to whatever limitations there are in our lives and how Absolutely. we are going to look at them. Absolutely. Let's talk a moment about when your interest in choice became a serious academic pursuit for you. Exactly when did that happen in your life? It officially happened when I was a Ph.D student at Stanford University, and I began to study the way Asians versus Americans would respond to choice. And I, there was a very famous psychologist, Hazel Marcus at Stanford, who talked about how Asians have a more interdependent self-identity, whereas Americans have a more independent self-identity. And when I, I saw her work, I thought, you know, that's exactly it. It is a difference in the way we think about choice. We have different ideas about how important choice really is. That's when I officially began 
when I look back, the first study that I ever did, which was when I was an undergrad, and I did that study with Marty Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, where we looked at whether uh, whether which religion you belong to could actually affect your happiness level. And I realize now that that was actually the first study I ever did on choice. Hmm. By the way, when you are talking about choosing, how would you distinguish that term, choosing or choice, from decision-making, which seems to be extremely close, very tightly related, and yet somehow that doesn't feel like it's exactly the same thing? Well, choice is broader than choosing or decision-making, right? Because choice is not just the exercise of making a choice between A, B, or however many options there are, but choice also has all this baggage of, of goodness, you know, like a choice object is a special object, and that's really what we, how we think about choice. We think of choice as this priceless thing in our lives, and that's because we're, we're born wanting it. It's this amazing concept. <laughs> you write at one point, this desire to choose is so innate that we act on it before we can express it. Uh, I think you you mentioned that at a point in time in in describing uh, how uh, really nearly from the moment we're out of the womb, uh, we are making choices and that there have even been studies of very, very young infants to explore what choices confront them and how they make those choices. Absolutely. And, you know, the first word out of my son's mouth was not mama, daddy, despite all mine and my husband's efforts. It was the word more, hmm. the ultimate expression of preference and choice. <laughs> I want to have you tell uh, in a little more detail something that you touched on very, very briefly as we began the interview, because I think it, as much as anything, crystallizes the notion that really empowers the whole book or galvanized you to, to, to write this. It is the story of your parents' traditional Sikh marriage. And uh, you describe this in wonderful fashion, uh, describing all kinds of different details from that particular day, uh, now uh, probably uh, over 40 years ago. And uh, at the time that you describe these events, one after another, after another, after another, through the course of, of a day, which at first appears to be fairly ordinary and is rapidly becoming extraordinary. But as you describe this, it's only at the end that you tell us that this is how your parents were married. Uh, describe to our listeners um, about this day and uh, how it is one example of a certain kind of choice, even though to uh, the typical American, in some ways it doesn't seem to represent choice at all. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I spent my whole childhood trying to explain to people that my parents really weren't these people from Mars, that it really wasn't that weird. That yes, you know, my my two grandmothers met over tea one day, and they decided it would be a decent match. That you know, my parents could get married. You know, my father would be able to support my mom, and my mom, you know, had a good enough education to be his wife. And well, they lived nearby. They had all the right lineages, and so they got married. And, 
you know, that they didn't know each other. They, they just would. And so the idea behind a, an arranged marriage is that you align these two resumes and you presumably try to find people that are fairly comp- compatible and that once they are joined, they will eventually develop love. That love wasn't supposed to be the basis behind the marriage. It's supposed to be something that just naturally develops over the course of time. Whereas, of course, in a love marriage, you have love, and then that's supposed to conquer all, right? That the compatibility, even if you don't have it, will develop as a function of your strong bond. In in a sense, uh, I mean, it's I, I suspect that you kind of bridle at the terminology that people choose to use, that your parents' marriage was an arranged marriage, and that a more conventional marriage in America is a love marriage. And it's not that they're wasn't love in your parents' marriage, but in a sense, there wasn't love at the beginning. It's more that love develops, and there's, in a sense, the greatest love at the end. Whereas in the so-called love marriages, with which most of us are acquainted, far too often it maybe kicks off with love or lust or some mix of the two, and over time, that love starts to deteriorate. I mean, but, but to say that love is part of one of those marriages and not a part of the other... Uh, really does an injustice to, for instance, your parents and 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 all who marry in the way that they did. There's just two entirely different models here, right? In one case, love is a choice. In the other case, love is destiny. We come back to the fate versus choice distinction. And you tell us that, uh, in a sense... Although on the surface, people look at an arranged marriage like that of your parents and see it as something that, that absolutely makes no sense, that that you've never even seen the person with whom you are being married until you lift the veil. Um, but But you point out quite rightly that it can be a very worthwhile choice to entrust that marriage and that choice of a life partner to people who know you very, very well, people like your own parents or grandparents or close friends or so on. It's just a different notion uh, or a different script in which choice is played out. Yes, I mean, I've seen good, happy and unhappy marriages that are both love and arranged. So it's not the case that arranged marriage necessarily always works out much better. But it's not the case that it works out worse. I mean, it, it actually in many cases can work out just fine, maybe even that time better. Hmm. You know, when I was in Japan, the the way to think about this in a a more maybe concrete way, when I was in Japan, I I went there as part of my PhD, and I, you know, I thought I was really culturally aware and culturally sensitive, and I knew all about Japanese culture and Japanese language and food, etc., and I went into a, a restaurant, and I ordered a cup of green tea, and the waiter brought me over the green tea. And I asked for sugar in my green tea. And the waiter, you know, very politely starts to tell me, you know, we don't put sugar in green tea. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but I just need a little sugar. It's a little bitter for me without the, without the sugar. And again, he tells me, you know, we don't put sugar in our green tea. And then he, and I kind of insist. And then he goes to the manager, and the manager comes over, and the manager now tells me we don't put sugar in our green tea. And then I, I kind of insist again. And then the waiter and the manager have this long, drawn-out discussion. And finally, the manager comes over to me and says, you know, we just don't have sugar. So then I said, okay, fine. Let me just have a cup of coffee. 
they bring me a cup of coffee, and on the saucer are two packets of sugar. So as an American, I felt affronted. I felt just like those people that were saying, you know, how could you allow your parents to have an arranged marriage? It was like my rights as a customer had been violated here. I couldn't have sugar with my green tea. But what they were telling me was that, look, we're doing this for your own good. We're protecting you from making a major faux pas. We're protecting you from embarrassing yourself, from embarrassing us, from from embarrassing the rest of the people at this restaurant. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Sheena Iyengar, and we're talking about her book called The Art of Choosing. And the book explores how, in fact, the notion of choice, which we as Americans tend to think of in very simplistic fashion, in fact, is a very complicated notion that can play out very differently in various cultures. I think at some point in our conversation, we have already touched on a very important divide uh, from which a lot of your your, your discussion uh, stems. And that is the divide between modern individualism, which, of course, is so much the hallmark of modern American society particularly, and more collective societies. Uh, I wonder if you could take us beneath the surface of those two terms, because probably just like the term choice, uh, it's probably possible to be a little too simplistic when we think about things like individualism versus collectivism. How would you have us understand those terms in the context of, uh, of this particular topic? very, very grand, broad terms, but so I'm not going to do them justice, but simply put, individualism means the I is in the center. So when I ask myself, what is it that I want to do, I think about my happiness, what's going to make me happy more so than the consequences on other people around me. It's not that I will ignore what happens to other people around me entirely, but for example, if I'm thinking about whom to marry, what my parents, so what I think is important for me and what will make me happy is more important to me than what my parents might think will make me happy or what they would want for their happiness in terms of whom I would choose. Now, by contrast, what collectivism is all about is that when I'm trying to make an important decision, I, I believe that it's only when the really important people in my life are happy that I will, too, be happy, that if they're not happy the chances that I'll be happy just won't happen. So that if I'm thinking about who I'm going to marry, if I know that my parents would strongly object, then this will necessarily ruin my happiness, and so therefore that choice is not appropriate. Tell us how you have come to understand uh, the emergence of these two very different views of the world and of human experience. Um, you, you trace modern individualism in, in some respects to the Enlightenment. Um, are you suggesting that we all began as more collective thinkers and then at some point this notion of modern individualism emerged as sort of a competitor? Uh, or have there always been these two notions existing uh, depending on where you were in the world? Collectivism has been the more dominant model throughout most of history. We had pockets of individualist-type ideas coming in. Say, for example, the Greeks with the idea of, of democracy began to come in. 
um, and the Romans also built on that a bit. Of course, it died off during the Middle Ages, really only emerged in a big way during the Enlightenment period with the rise of Protestantism. So individualism is the more new concept, and collectivism is the older concept. There are more versions of collectivism, which makes that a much harder idea to get our heads around, because you know, collectivism is affected by your religion, so collect, uh, Catholicism versus Islam versus Sikhism versus Hinduism versus Buddhism. They're, they're all slightly different brands of, of collectivism. Uh, collectivism also got, gets affected by politics. So, for example, the whole communist movement was essentially a type of collectivism movement, right? It was saying, look, we care about the masses. We don't care about the, the elite individuals. We want everybody to have the same thing. That was, again, a concern for the collective over any one individual. Hmm. Individualism is always about concern of the individual. And, and the belief, of course, is that as you are concerned with every individual, that you know everybody gets helped, and so therefore the collective will be served. Do you happen to be a Star Trek fan? Um, a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I just this just occurs to me now. I didn't even think of it as I read your book. But at the end of one of the uh, Star Trek films, uh, in an exchange between Kirk and Spock, Spock says something about how the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. He's kind of explaining at that point at the end of the second film why he chose to sacrifice his life to save the ship. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, I believe it would have been the third film right after it, uh, Kirk and his comrades risk uh, ruining their professional lives and standing in order to uh, to rescue Spock from, from death, ultimately, even though they're disobeying all kinds of orders. And his explanation about why he did that, is that the need of the one outweighed the needs of the many. And in a sense, in those two lines from those two screenplays, uh, we have before us the difference between individualism and collectivism. And, oh, that's beautiful. And we have, in a sense, uh, one way to answer the question which you pose in the book at one point. So where do the borders between individualism and collectivism lie in the modern world. I love the way you phrase that question. Tell us more about that and uh, maybe how your book, at least in part, serves to, to, to answer that intriguing question. So, in a sense, that question is very difficult to answer because it's not the case that you can draw the line but just solely by nation. Like even with our own, within our own country, we have people that are more individualist and people that are more collectivist. So, for example, if you live in a rural part of this nation, say, for example, North Dakota, people are more individualist. If you live in a city, you're more collectivist. If you're richer, you're more individualist. If you're poorer, you're more collectivist. If you're in the agricultural region, you're more collectivist. So it's partly driven just by necessity and how many people there happen to be around. You know, one of the things that happened that was quite fascinating during the whole Katrina disaster was that they, the, the sort of richer people around and the government officials couldn't understand why people didn't leave the site. 
why did they stay at home when it was so dangerous? And in subsequent interviews, when you actually interviewed these people that were generally from a lower economic status, and you asked them, you know, why didn't you leave? A large part of their answer was about how they, they couldn't leave. They couldn't leave. They didn't see it as a choice because they had people that they were responsible for, that they weren't just going to leave behind. And in a sense, although from the outside, leaving seemed like a perfectly valid choice, and uh, and uh, and it was easy from the sidelines to suggest that some people just didn't have the moral courage to make what might have been a difficult choice. For others, the reality of their lives was that, in fact, that was not a viable choice. Yes, because they were part of an interconnected and interdependent community. Your book goes on to explore so many facets of what at one point you call choice land, the, the, the modern world in which we live, and particularly here in America where we are confronted by all kinds of, of, of choices. And um, actually, maybe ahead of me asking you about a couple of specific things, maybe you could explain to our listeners how you have laid out this book and uh, the pathway that we follow in exploring the notion of choice. This book has seven chapters, and it has a prologue and an epilogue. Each of them address a slightly different question about the role choice plays in our life. But essentially, what the question, what the book tries to do is answer three questions. Why do we love choice? How do we choose? What are the sort of dilemmas we face while we're making choices? And there's a bunch of them in there, like to use gut versus reason, the whole manipulation dilemma, uh, the whole uh, too much choice problem, the whole healthcare dilemma. But how do we choose? And then finally, how can we choose better? And at the very end, it says, well, despite all these difficulties with choice, and all the limitations that we have when choosing. How, what are the aspects of choice that we can and should celebrate? Hmm. One thing that was a surprise to me, and I'll also maybe warn our, our listeners that the, in a couple of instances what I'm about to talk about uh, are, are, are somewhat troubling or disturbing moments in the book. You outline, I believe it might even be in the first chapter, uh, a number of different studies that have been done involving animals. Mm-hmm. And animals, particularly uh, around the choices that some animals seem to make regarding their own survival. Mm-hmm. And, and some, of these, some of these experiments, of course, are, are the kind of, of experiments uh, out of which protests are mounted and, uh, and angry letters written uh, you know, in, in involving, in, in a sense, the mistreatment of animals. But, but, uh, but we have learned valuable things about choice from some of these experiments. I wonder if you could just speak a moment, first of all, to just kind of the overall notion of studying human choice by studying rats in, in various scenarios. I mean, that, that just really struck me as a huge surprise. It never would have occurred to me that animals could serve that kind of function uh, 
in studying this particular thing? It's funny you mentioned the rat study because I debated, I had a huge internal debate inside me as to whether to describe that study because I knew it's really, it's it's mind-boggling, it curdles, it's just, it gives you... And we probably should, you probably should say just a word to our listeners. Uh, you can leave out whatever details you like, but what we're talking about. Would you like me to describe the study? I mean, to some extent. I mean, um, not in every detail, maybe. All right. So what they did was they put these, these rats, and this was a study done a long time ago, so we can't get away with these kinds of studies today. So, you know, just, just as a heads up. Um, so what they did was they put these rats in these big jars, and they were put in a sink-swim situation. And they had to swim to stay afloat because they were in this big jar filled with water, and water was coming down uh, from the top as well, and so they had to keep swimming to stay alive. And the question was, how long can these rats stay alive before just giving up and dying? And in one case, they gave the rats this impression that they might get out. And... When they didn't have the impression that they could get out, they swam for 15 minutes and just died. And when they did have the, a little bit of an impression that they might be able to get out, they swam for 60 hours. They just, they swam and swam and swam and swam. I suppose swam themselves to death. They swam themselves to death. They held on to that hope for as long as they had even a little bit of breath in them. And it just really, to me, that just shows our, the enormous capacity for the, that just that belief that I might have control can really keep us going. And, and, and I think it's symbolic of the kinds of stories that you read about of people that made it through the Holocaust or made it through you know, such amazingly awful experiences in their life, you know, like the story of Steve Callahan and how he's lost at sea, and how does he survive? It takes sheer will. And one of the things you say about, for instance, Steve, Steve Callahan, who is adrift 76 days at sea, um, he, in your words, framed his situation dire though it was, in terms of choice. And that makes all the difference versus somebody who finds themselves on this raft and says to themselves, I'm going to die. And there is no choice, there is no hope, and you sit there and say your prayers or whatever you do, or maybe even end your life before you just perish from the elements. Steve Callahan, again, in your words, framed his situation, dire though it was, in terms of choice. Can you explain that just a bit further? I mean, specifically what he did, and maybe even more importantly, what's important about that story for the rest of us who don't find ourselves on a raft? I mean, what is applicable about this story to us when it comes to choice? What we learned from experiences like Steve Callahan and studies from animals and studies from looking at people that have AIDS and cancer is that as long as you believe you have choice, you do better in life. I mean, you just have more will. You have more determination. That it enables you to keep going on. And that believing you have choice is even more important than actually having choice. Because, for example, if you have AIDS, if 
you believe you have control over that disease, they've found that you can live a little longer. If you believe you have control over cancer, they found you can live a little longer. So now think about our, our day-to-day lives. So if we can, when we're in a traffic jam, when we're, you know, in a miserable meeting that we'd rather just get out of, I mean, the more you can think of yourself as saying, yeah, I've got control, it's okay, life is okay, I've got control of my life, you'll be a happier person and a healthier one. You uh, outline an interesting study that was done involving, uh, in your words, lower-grade employees and some of their particular risks uh, in terms of, of, of dying young and suffering various health problems. And uh, this study ultimately revealed uh, what would be, for many people, kind of an unexpected reason seemingly at the heart of some some troubling statistics. Talk about that study, please. Yes, there was a big study done in England. Um, It was called the Whitehall Study, where they looked, they tracked a whole bunch of employees ranging from CEO down to the doorman. And they looked at a whole bunch of things. But what they found was that even though we would think of the CEO as having a lot more stresses in their life, being a sort of type A personality, and they ought to be more likely to drop dead of a heart attack at a young age, they actually found that the CEO did better than the doorman, even though the doorman seemingly has more relaxed sort of job situation. And even after you took into consideration the differences in smoking and eating habits and things like that, they found that the, the doorman did worse. And in fact, even the person that was just below the CEO, so potentially financially almost as well off as the CEO, like doctors, lawyers, etc., even they did worse than the CEO. And when they narrowed in on what it was that was different, it was their perception of how much choice they had in their day-to-day lives. They were just more stressed out when they don't feel they have control over what they have to do next. I think it's interesting what you were just talking about, feeling like they don't have choice or feeling like they don't have control of their life. Uh, because, of course, that's that's two different things, but very tightly related, especially on the evidence of this study, that if we can make even a few choices about how our day unfolds or exactly what we do through the course of a day, I mean, in a sense, we're not completely controlling our lives or the world in which we live. But in a sense, we are given more of a sense that we control it more than we otherwise do if we have no choices whatsoever. Yeah, choice on the mind is more important than choice in reality. Because you actually, you know, if one were to actually be brutally honest, we don't have a whole lot of control over our lives, and the amount of control we actually have over our lives is getting less and less because the world is becoming very complicated. We're pretty dependent on everybody around us. But it's really important that we we believe we have control and that we have control in our minds. Hmm. Well, and I guess when it comes to something like you, you mentioned, for instance, when people are suffering from cancer or AIDS or some other tremendously serious thing, when they feel like they have control over their cancer, it makes all the difference in the world in terms of their well-being. And, of course, people don't have control over their cancer or their AIDS, but they, have, but they might be given at least choices about how to contend with this tremendously serious threat. 
What would be a real-life example of that in which that would make a, a, a tremendous difference? So here's the, the thing to really distinguish between. It's really important for that cancer patient to believe that they have control over their disease, but that doesn't mean that they won't get negatively affected if they're asked to make the very serious choices. So there's a difference between believing I have control versus actually having to exercise that control. Because what we do find is when you actually ask a cancer patient who's in a lot of pain to now choose between treatment A versus treatment B versus treatment C and actually contemplate the, the effects of these various side effects and which one can you better live with, then they become paralyzed. That actually adds stress. That brings to mind uh, something else, the, the fact that freedom and unlimited choice is not something which automatically gives us greater happiness, and particularly in certain places and particularly places where people have lived by a different script or seen themselves in a different way, uh, unbridled freedom or seemingly unbridled freedom and uh, unlimited choice uh, is not, not necessarily something received uh, as joyously as we might think, or especially over the long haul. Uh, tell us what we learned, for instance, from the citizens of East Berlin in the wake of the Berlin Wall coming down. That was really fascinating to me. I mean, I was there when the Berlin Wall fell, and it was just the most amazing moment. It was this moment when everybody celebrated freedom, and it was great. And, and then I went back to Berlin, and you know, I've been going back every few years because I have a bunch of collaborators there and I would start to talk to the East Berlin PhD students that's how it all began then I began to do interviews and I, I just didn't understand it these East Berliners were saying they thought life was better in the old days and so, you know it was better and I said why well you know in the old days we could only go to one place for vacation that was Budapest but at least we knew we could go on vacation now we can go anywhere we want but we can't afford to go anywhere same thing went for TV channels. Hmm. So when we think about what people in other places and other countries want, uh, one of the messages of your book is that we have to be careful, and particularly when Americans make grand pronouncements about how uh, the citizens of such and such a nation will all be happier and better off if we give them X, and in particular, if we give the citizens of such and such a country greater choice. Uh, we ha your book says a couple of different things. One of them is, what is choice? That there are different kinds of choice. But your book also says that it seems that all humans, in some way, do need choice. Uh, help us get comfortable with both of those truths. They, they are not completely uh, compatible with one another, it seems to me. I mean, not... We all need freedom. No nation on earth would say, come conquer me. Right? We know that. Yet, how we practice that freedom, what we think of as the right mix of choice, that varies. So, even if, even in our own home turf, when you look at the big debate between the Republicans and the Democrats, in a sense, it's very much like the debate between the communists versus the capitalists. It's just in a, you know, 
a different form of it, but they're essentially two different worldviews about what constitutes a fair choice. The Republicans are saying that a fair choice is one that comes from merit. We give everybody equal opportunity. We don't put up barriers. And that way, whoever can afford more gets more, or for whatever reason, merits more, gets more, merits less, gets less. What are the Democrats saying? They're saying that equal opportunity, or a fair form of choice, is not about merit. It's about giving everybody equal outcomes, that everybody, you know, if you really want to have a free world, everybody should be given the same initial helping hand. And these are fundamentally very different views on what constitutes the right sort of world in which we should be living in. And we hold to these as if they're true, and that everybody, of course, would understand and buy into the same truth. When, in fact, we obviously don't. We obviously don't. I mean, Barack Obama's got a real challenge on his hand if he's going to come up with a health care plan that will speak to these fundamentally very different truths about the way people look at the world. And particularly about the notion of choice and what is the best kind of choice uh, for one to be given uh, with various facets of our lives. Uh, One of the last things you write in your wonderful book is this. Choosing helps us create our lives. We make choices and are in turn made by them. Science can assist us in becoming more skillful choosers, but at its core, choice remains an art. To gain the most from it, we must embrace uncertainty and contradiction. It does not look the same to all eyes, nor can everyone agree on its purpose. Sometimes choice pulls us to itself. Other times it repels us. We use it without exhausting it, and the more we uncover, the more we find still hidden. We cannot take full measure of it. Therein lies its power, its mystery, and its singular beauty. The book is The Art of Choosing. It is published by 12 Books, the author Sheena Iyengar. Sheena Iyengar, what a thought-provoking book this is. I mean that in the best sense of the word, and I so enjoyed speaking with you about it uh, today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much for reading the book. You really, and and, and the way you read out from the book was really moving. I'm glad you enjoyed this experience. I did too. Thank you so much for joining me.